0: was from a 1964 film (laughs) called Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Yes! which I loved
1: that movie as a kid. You you did? I I really did. And the poster said in big letters across it, scientifically accurate, right down to Mona the space monkey that was part of the crew.
0: Yeah, there was a space monkey.
1: (laughs) I know, I'm I'm showing my geek here.
0: (laughs) I, I, I thought that, I just would be pulling that out of the, you know... Out of, let's do just something random, and it turns out that uh, it's one of Rod Pyle's favorites. Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Wow. How you been on Earth? (laughs) I've been good. I've been
1: very busy. There's a lot going on, and uh, I've just been waiting to talk
0: to you. That's what my life is about, John. I, I appreciate that now i see that this one headline is the end of ingenuity now that doesn't mean ingenuity on earth as we know it right i mean you can still be ingenious it's not the end of our in, in uh ingenuity but i guess uh, up on mars it's all over is that right
1: yeah we'll still be clever down here but the mars helicopter which is Named formally Ingenuity or informally Ginny, as they call it up there, the JPL, uh, has flown its last flight. But what a remarkable career. So, can I wax rhapsodic wax, oh, yes. about it for a minute?
0: That's, what, that's why we have you here. Wax on, wax off. So, so,
1: oh, God. Okay. So, you know, it's a cute story. This started back around 2012. When a group of uh, engineers at JPL got together and, and really just began the conversation over cocktail napkins and wouldn't a wooden helicopter on Mars be cool. We'd be able to get around easier than these slow drives we do with the rovers and see lots of stuff from high up. They started working on it. And in 2014, I was invited to a press conference over at Caltech, which was just a few blocks from me and went and saw this little demonstration model they had, and this woman named Mimi Ong, who's uh, originally her family's from Myanmar, but she's a U.S. citizen, had, had led the engineering on this thing. And so they showed us video of their tests in a vacuum chamber because Mars's atmosphere is almost a vacuum. It's only about 1% of Earth's, and this thing would fly up a little bit and then crash and fly up a little bit and crash. So they kind of chuckled and said, oh, we got lots of work to do, but it's coming. Then as we were leaving the auditorium, there was a JPL press rep out there that stopped us and said, "You can't write about this." Oh. And so he just invited us to a press conference. He oh. said, "I know, I know, but you can't write about it. We'll let you know." So, as it turns out, JPL thought they had to go ahead from NASA. NASA had not officially decided. So, a few days later, we got permission to write about it under certain conditions. So, to shorten the story a bit, they didn't actually approve it until 2018 for a 2020 flight which is when they launched the Perseverance rover, which this thing was attached to. So this team had trundled along for years on a shoestring, developing this thing, little bits and pieces. Meanwhile, the science team working the rover is saying, we don't want it, some of them, we don't want a helicopter because it's going to distract from the science with a capital S. And the engineering people are saying, yeah, but we want to know if it'll work. So just take it with you and you know, we'll keep a low profile. So... At the end of the day, they had about 18 months to finally get this thing built and put together, so it was a mad scramble and those people worked 24 hours a day for a while and shifts to get this thing done. They hoped it would fly at least once. They really crossed their fingers and said, we'll feel lucky if we get five flights, but in the end of the the program, which uh, came to an end just about a week and a half ago, they flew 72 times, and it wasn't until the 72nd flight that they had this this accident that broke a rotor blade um, with good reasons uh, that, that ended its little mission. So it will now sit there and collect solar power and continue to think with the Rover driving away, it won't be able to communicate with us because the radio link is through the Rover. So one wonders what kind of dreams, the little basic AI unit has yeah. sitting on Mars in the next 10 years thinking
0: he's AI Caruso on Mars. He's all alone.
1: Exactly. <laughs> exactly, without of <Mom laughs> the
0: Space Monkey. Yeah. That's right. So let me let me backtrack just a second here. Sure. And you know, I am no science. I had no science, but at any rate. That's not true. So, so this rover, one of the things is, that I get from reading your material is they wanted to see if a propeller-driven helicopter type machine could work in the Mars atmosphere. Is that correct?
1: Right. And because it's so thin, you need really long blades. There's two blades, each four feet across that had to spin at 2,600 RPM to get this little four pound thing off the ground. Wow. So it was quite a technical feat. They were able to test it on earth in a vacuum chamber. Like I said, and they found out to land properly, but it's got to do all this by itself. You know, because it takes anywhere between eight and 20 minutes for a signal to reach Earth, and then you got to send it back. So they had off the shelf components in here, off the shelf cameras, off the self processing chips, not designed to last a real long time, yeah. which is why they didn't hope for the extended career they got with it because Mars has tons of radiation hitting it, and a lot of stuff would get fried easily. But, you know, by dint of JPL's amazing engineering, they pulled it off.
0: And you also said that. Some scientists, th- oh, no, wait a minute. Some some people in the program or NASA or wherever said that the use of the blades detracted from the science? What does that mean? Well, what
1: they meant was that, that they were afraid that the helicopter project would slow down what they wanted to do for science. So rover time, you know, they move slowly. It takes a long time to do some of these investigations. and you know, they might mm. be sitting at a rock or a drill hole for a week or two. And they didn't want time spent. You know, you've got a, a limited amount of uplinking and downlinking and chatting with the rover you can do. They didn't want to lose a bunch of time to this experiment all that might not okay. work. All
0: right.
1: And if you're a scientist, I get it. And the thing about the helicopter was all it had was a radio and a processor and, and some cameras on it. So it's not able to land and actually learn much about the rocks it's on except by staring at them. So they were concerned that it would take away from what they were trying to do, but ultimately. Cooler minds prevailed, and they said, "Now we're going to do it." And it actually ended up, rather than just being a single experiment about can we fly, they ended up using it to hop ahead of the rover and say, "Okay, turn here. Don't turn here. Here's some rocks. Here's some sand. Make sure you avoid that." So it kind of ended up being a scout. sort of
0: sort of like a little GPS on Mars.
1: Well, it's it's like you're driving and you had a pop up drone in your car that could fly ahead too oh, loud and say, "Hey, there's a traffic jam. <laughs> get off on Ilso Street and drive west three miles and then get back on the freeway." So it was like smart GPS, I guess. Yeah, oh,
0: very smart. Uh, we're talking to Rod Pyle, editor in chief at Astra Magazine. More of it. See, you're back from outer space. There you go, John Landecker. I, I, mean, I will survive in turning it into an ad Astra bump <laughs> with Rod Pyle because the back from outer space <clears throat> yes we are at <laughs> 720 WGN all right uh at Astro Magazine you're the uh editor-in-chief uh the second headline I have here from you Rod Piled, is the moon is a harsh mistress I what do you mean by that <laughs>
1: Uh, I'm actually just stealing a, a Robert Heinlein title from a book. But in this case, um, there's a lot of countries trying to land robots on the moon. So, so far, we've succeeded in the Russians, of course, back in the 60s. And then China and India, more recently, have both landed robots on the moon. And now private companies in the U.S. are trying to build landers that will succeed. So there's one company in Pittsburgh called Astrobotic, Gotten a contract with NASA through this thing called Clips, which is commercial lunar payload services. Basically, NASA's giving up money to private companies and saying, Okay, you do it, you do it cheaper than us and make it work. And they say, Okay. And they did their very best, built a very robust machine, launched it on a brand new rocket from a company called United Launch Alliance, which is a partnership of Boeing and Lockheed Martin. And the rocket flew great and tossed the lander into a trajectory to reach the moon. And then shortly thereafter, it uh, rotated wrong, lost communication. They got communications back, but then discovered that it had sprung a propellant leak. It was not going to be able to land on the moon, so instead, it leaked the moon, came back, and re-entered over Earth and burned up.
0: Maybe a bolt. Maybe success. a bolt was loose. If you ever consider that a bolt might have been loose? Well, you, know, you know what I'm saying? That's going around are... these days. <laughs> I've got one of those in my head. Um, yeah.
1: You know, launches are very violent things, and and the the spacecraft payloads get shaken and and battered around and banged around, and a lot could go wrong. So you test them on the ground with a vibration table, but you really don't know until you try it. And it often takes two or three tries, and you try and figure out from whatever messaging you got from the machine while it was up there before it failed. Saying, "Uh uh-oh, you know, we've got a pressure drop here. I think it's that fuel line or whatever the case may be. And then you sort of try and work backwards from that and figure out what went wrong and do it again so they've got a second one going up this year and another company is launching in about a month so this is kind of the beginning of this assault on the moon part two right we've already been there we had people there six times on yeah. the surface yeah but now we're trying to send back these smaller robots because what we want to do is find out where the water is That's that's the big goal this this mission wasn't specific for that but in the big picture They want to figure out where the water resources are because that's worth a lot of money ultimately Hmm. if you can find it up there instead of having to launch it up there, which is expensive.
0: So basically, well, Japan has had, I guess, according to your report, a partial success um, with a uh, moon uh, device. I guess this is sort of like not the gold rush, but the water rush where every uh, country is trying to get it together to get to the moon to discover water. Which would then what prove that we could live there, and if we could live there, then we could use it as a way station to go to Mars. Is there any truth exactly. you know what I'm saying? And, oh, and, really? And the great thing, of, well, the great thing about water is if it exists like they think
1: it does, is big chunks of ice under the surface, which would be much easier to get at than having to, you know, if you just found it like a frost on the surface and had to scoop yeah. it up and process it. That's harder. But if there's a lot of it. You can use it to make breathable air. You know, you crack the uh, H2O part, you can make breathable air, you can make drinkable water, and probably most important, you could make liquid hydrogen, which becomes rocket fuel then. So, again, rather than having to haul up all this heavy stuff from Earth, if it's on the moon, which only has about 16% of our gravity, it's very easy to get off the surface and continue on to Mars and wherever else you want to go. So it's really like this huge free resource up there. And once it's found, either by us or by China, probably one of the two, um, you've got a a substantial stake in terms of cash flow.
0: So this is a little bit like uh, For All Mankind, except it's on the moon. You watch that series? It it really is, except,
1: you know, the one thing that was kind of cute and sad at the same time about the Japanese lander so it was called Slim and the, the nickname for it in Japanese was Moon Sniper, because it was going nice. to they hold, land very close to where they aimed it, which it did, a couple yeah. hundred feet. But it landed upside down, <laughs> which had never <laughs> happened before. And uh, they don't really know how yet. They think the rocket's cut out early, and it started to spin as it went down. But amazingly, it was still, uh, after about a week, they realized, hey, we're still getting a little signal here. But the solar panels are in the dark, so they're only going off batteries, so they're being very, very sparing in their use. But what's very cool is they had two little tiny mini rovers attached, one that uses little jets to hop and jump around to various, various areas nearby, and another one with with, uh, with a, a wheel type arrangement. And those are working; those actually sprung loose from the lander anyway and landed right side up. So they're going around doing their thing while the lander's sitting at them, looking at them upside down.
0: <laughs> Whatever works. What's the payoff? It's
1: disorienting, you know.
0: I mean, other than um, water, I mean, there's got to be some sort of reason that all these countries are sending their devices up to the moon. I mean, because it yeah, costs Japan a lot of money to and- get there. It does.
1: And for Japan and more so for India and China, it's kind of a lot of nationalism and national pride involved. They're showing that they can flex their technology muscles. Gotcha. They have not a huge advantage over the U.S. I mean, our advantage is we've done it many times and except for this latest example, our stuff usually works, especially when NASA builds it or contracts it. but beyond that, for the, for the smaller nations, this is their chance to sort of, like you, you said, there's this water rush on the moon. This is their chance to sort of enter that sweepstakes. And they can do it a lot cheaper than us. So, like that, uh, if you remember a few years ago, India sent an orbiter around Mars. When we do that, it costs anywhere between half a billion and a billion dollars. They did it for about $30 million really? because their workforce is cheaper. Yeah. And they got a lot of highly trained people, and so does China.
0: And, you know, if something goes wrong, you get a call center. So, you know, what point <laughs> oh my is it?
1: God. Well, that's in, in India. I think in China, a black oh, band may show okay. up at your house and invite you to come visit them at their headquarters. I don't know.
0: Um, well, thanks, Rod. Uh, what's on the podcast? Actually,
1: uh, this week we have a, thank you for asking, we have a guy okay. from the History Channel that's going to come on and talk about space and science on on TV and how they do it. And on the 16th of February, we have the number two at NASA, the deputy director named Pam Milroy, which is a real catch for us. And she's going to talk about all the stuff you and I talk about with regard to going back to the moon and sending Americans and other foreign nationals back to the moon with the Artemis program. So that's the one we're really looking forward to.
0: All right. Well, that's all good stuff. Thanks, Rod, for being with us. Appreciate it. Rod Pyle.